We're recording on Gadigal land and we acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and pay our respects to their culture and elders. I'm Karina May. And I'm Claire Fletcher. And we love rom-coms. They're our favourite kind of love stories. We love reading and watching rom-coms so much we started writing our own. We're always chasing that rom-com feeling. You know the one. Warm and fuzzy one. And we might not be experts, but by God, we're enthusiastic. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) It feels like so long since we've done this. What has it been? Like a week? Two weeks? I know. And we were just saying like, episode eight, how did we get here? God, we're so professional. I know. That's almost season one wrapped, I would think. Mm. But the special this week is Wonderlust, which we will dig into. And I think... We thought we would do that because by the time this episode is coming out, there's something else is going to be coming out, Karina. What could it be? I think actually it's probably out the day before this episode drops, is it? Or around about. But my second print book, romantic comedy, Never Ever Forever, uh, is out. And I'm feeling good about it. <laughs> I really wish we were on a radio show where I had a button I could press that would just be like a Cheer. crowd cheering. <laughs> and so that book for loyal listeners will know that that spans Mudgee to Mumbai. So partly inspired by a trip of mine to India, which we will get into when we talk more on Wanderlust later in the episode. But I think we wanted to start out by chatting about a new study. (laughs) Is it a study? Research that has come out around covers. It's some really data-driven reporting, which um, is very interesting. Thanks for finding this. Of course. Yeah. I mean, Covers is something that we talk about quite a lot. We're always that I don't think you ever quite get over the anticipation of like what your story will be, how it will be represented in a visual form. Because you can't kind of, I can't ever picture when I'm writing or do you often have something in mind when you're writing? No, not really. I mean, I suppose it's one of the most tangible things that comes out of your work as a writer as opposed like there's obviously the physical object of a book but yeah it's that visual representation and I think it's always a bit nerve-wracking and exciting to see how the team at your publisher does interpret that story and how it comes through in the cover that they design sometimes it you know it feels quite different to how you see the story um, and then other times it's bang on. Regardless, it's such like a milestone moment, right? On one of those, it's it's like when you get your uh, advanced copies for the first time and you open, you do the unboxing, getting the cover and doing the cover reveal is a real moment. It's a marker of, you know, of the journey. Content-wise, it's one of the biggest performers in it, my it, experience. It, it is. People love a cover. <laughs> and well, they'll tell you it's lovely regardless of if it actually is lovely. Well, they're almost always lovely, but yeah, I suppose there are there are different types of covers. And this article is interesting because it's specifically about romance covers. Mm-hmm. And they've done some analysis over over time, right? Yeah. So I think um, you will link the article, um, but it's from The Pudding. Cute. Which I, Have you heard of The Pudding? No. No, I hadn't either. I should probably subscribe. I'm going to be um, digging in more. Yeah. So I think they looked at 1,400 covers published between 2011 and 2023, just to find out how visuals change. Um, So we all know the, I call them the Fabio covers. Mm. (laughs) The undressed man. (laughs) The clinch. The clinch, they call it here, yeah. (laughs) So I think that that's how romance was typically visually represented in you know, 2011, 2012, 13, I think. So they did a study to show that um, it has changed over time to what we now know from the raunchiness where I think a third of the covers had that kind of partially unclothed lubber (laughs) to what we see now more commonly with romance and particularly romantic comedy, which is the illustrated cover, the cartoon, the fun graphic, the cutesy look. And so I was reflecting and actually Sally Thorne has weighed in so Sally Thorne author of The Hating Game um, that her book The Hating Game was one of the very first romance novels to have a graphic cover in 2016 Uh yeah which was then followed in 2018 I think or a few years later by The Kissing Quotient which we've also chatted about on this podcast. Well I'm just reading a pull quote from the article here which is Helen Huang talking about 
how she asked for an illustrated cover for the Kiss Quotient to try to, quote, slip past unconscious bias related to the race of the lead characters on the cover. So that's an interesting approach mm. to... Because I think if you look at the data and they've kind of grafted in this piece, there's kind of a, a bar graph over time looking at raunchiness, which decreases, the illustrated <laughs> covers, which take off, and diversity, which also increases. That's so interesting because I guess, yeah, it makes it like more of a universal thing, like using cartoons. Hmm. Do you like those covers or what do you what do you tend towards as a reader, like in a bookshop when you're browsing? judging a book by its cover which we all do yeah well I do like the cartoon covers I mean my preference is always for something that feels like it's created with someone's hands does that make sense it like does actually in my in my day job with the the Walkleys the the journalism foundation we used to do a magazine and one of my favorite parts of working on that was working with cartoonists and illustrators and designers to commission artwork and even covers for our magazine and you know obviously in cartooning there's been a big shift to working digitally and with all illustrate all illustrators kind of need to be adept at using digital techniques now but there's just something really magical about looking at a piece of artwork that you know someone's done with their hands like mm. there are still um, illustrators working in sort of newspaper and, and magazine artwork that are working with, you know, paints or brush and ink or pencils, whatever. And I just find there's something really special about that. And the same, I always love great photography on a book cover as well. I agree. I mean, we were also going to just chat about book talk and the rise of the popularity of these types of books. Um, I mean, they come up great visually, but also... Sometimes the cover can be quite misleading as to the content inside. <laughs> well, I was really struck and I hadn't seen this before. I got, we were both sent a box of books from um, Polly at Simon & Schuster, which was lovely. And amongst them was Icebreaker and the new title that followed that, uh, Wildfire by Hannah Grace. And I picked it up. And on the back cover is a like content warning saying 18 plus, you know, suitable not suitable for minors, basically. And I'd never seen it before and I kind of posted in my stories, was like, is this a thing now? Mm. You know, age warnings on, on books. And I think from a lot of the messages that I received back, it's kind of there for booksellers and parents and kind of relates back to the fact that a lot of these covers maybe make a story look younger than it is or... I think there's been instances where books appeared as YA and were maybe even shelved in a bookstore as YA. Yeah, I actually heard of a bookstore that was... Um, I mean, Colleen Hoover, I think, maybe does have some YA, but the majority of Colleen Hoover is not YA appropriate that they had put Colleen Hoover in the YA section. Also, I think it's great, you know, that teenagers are getting back into reading, largely because of book talk, but... I think there is um, still maybe uh, some issues with parents not knowing what exactly their teenagers are picking up, particularly Tessa Bailey, who we have spoken about. Her covers are so cute and the content is very spicy. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, yeah, I think it's – and I haven't got deep into either of the Hannah Grace books, but, um, yes, reportedly there's plenty of action and explicit scenes in those that – it's it's an interesting question, isn't it, whether parents get to make that choice, especially for teenagers. I suppose it's more with young teenagers. And I was kind of DMing with a few authors and readers I know who are mums and they were kind of saying that they felt a little conflicted about it because on the one hand, you know, they, they're very happy that their kids, and I think they were mostly talking about daughters, were reading more. And, you know, they kind of wanted to know what level of, you know, explicit or you know, what sex is in these books that their maybe early teen daughters are reading. And then I was like, but, you know, mo <laughs> a lot of my early education around sex was reading like VC Andrews books in an op shop when I would have probably been 12 or 13. And I'm pretty confident that these are a bit more sex positive at a yeah, bit more... Yeah, well, it's before we had Yumi's book, right? <laughs> like, we didn't have that. Yeah. So, it's in, you know, there's a, there's a lot to talk about there and I think it'll continue 
to mm. evolve. Is there a trend emerging that it's, is going to go beyond the, the graphic covers and the cartoon covers? I haven't seen it yet, but I'd be interested to know what the, the next kind of move is. I mean, we're speaking specifically to romance and I certainly see trends in other genres happening right now. But, yeah, I'm interested to know what the next step for romance is. It's interesting to look at, like, how different different trends in colours, for example, or fonts, you often see mm. those play out. Um, and I guess a lot of that comes from, you know, there's always, like, the big trend reports each year around, you know, Pantone does their colour of the year. There's sort of trends in fonts. Love Match is very green, my most oh, recent book. it's so great. It just stands out so much. It does stand out, but I do feel like... you had the Dimmix, the George Street window. Like, you could see, like, it was just a beacon. <laughs> <laughs> An oval beacon, as in green oval. <laughs> <laughs> but even the font, you know, like I remember looking at the latest Natasha Lester book and I feel like, and because it's 70s set, whereas some of hers were earlier like historical periods, I feel like it used a similar font to the one that's on the cover of Love Match and I think that does, again, speak to a kind of bit of a mini trend there. Oh, maybe. I didn't notice that, but you're right. Hmm. I recently was in New York, you might have heard that, <laughs> and visited a dedicated romance bookstore that's just opened up there called The Rip Bodice. And what struck me as soon as I stepped foot in there, although, you know, I had seen previews online, which is what got me there in the first place, was the colours. I mean, it's such a fun store to walk into because they have shelves and shelves of these, like, beautiful, fun, poppy graphic books that you instantly just feel joy, right? Like It's it, like that rainbow pastel candy yeah, store. Yeah, and the shop itself um, is painted, like pink and they've just done such a beautiful fit out it's owned by two sisters and it's such a joy just to walk into a space that's dedicated to romance books I think a lot of us kind of watched their renovation in real time on Instagram it's just so beautiful and I love that that exists I know yeah. and it's in Park Slope where near where you used to live yeah we were in South Park Slope yeah what street is it on can you remember Gosh, please, I barely made it there with my GPS. Um, <laughs> but I was attending the book launch uh, for Meryl Wilsner's <gasps> book. Cleek Cute. Cleek Cute, yeah, and you mentioned their book on one of our early podcasts. So the fact that that was able, I lined that up, um, was so fun. And you brought the book back for me. Thank I you. Did. A signed copy. You're the best. <laughs> so our non-trope, trope of the day. <laughs> our theme. 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 Maybe we should rebrand this. Wonderlust. So, yeah, as previously mentioned, I love writing in a Wonderlust type way. Well, that's part of, you've got a really great sort of mission statement for yourself as an author, don't you? Yes. Well, I think we've spoken on the pod before about, I thought, how can I make my trips tax deductible? So I was <laughs> like, I'm going to give myself an author tag. <laughs> so I think I do writer of lively love stories that span the globe or lively love stories for Wonderlusters. Perfect. Yeah, so either way, that encapsulates um, all my receipts, my Airbnbs, <laughs> my flights. <laughs> so travel for you is inspiration, but it's also part of your writing process often, isn't it? Yes, so much part of my process that I fear that I cannot write a book without a trip um, because instead of having what is commonly known as that saggy middle, I put them on a plane. So, yes, I think the next kind of challenge is to work out if I can write without going somewhere. Mm. But, yeah, there's plenty of books, I think, that uh, influenced me early on that I loved reading books where they went on a holiday. And we were thinking before because I was sure it was this Marion Keys book. Um, have we spoken about Marion Keys on the pod yet? I don't think we have. Isn't yeah. that insane? Welcome, Marion. Come on down. <laughs> Friend of the pod. <laughs> Friend of the pod. We'll tag her and see what happens. She's, eh? she's a bit of a fairy godmother of the pod, I'd say. Yeah. I mean, she's great on Instagram. Like, oh. yeah, I love her videos. I Yeah, just very calming presence she has and so much um, spark. She's very sparky. By all accounts, a very sort of generous person with mm. her time as well. Like, mm. I think she's often reading work from young writers. She would often endorse, you know, other writers' work. Trying to remember, I think I maybe talked when I when I was chatting with Caroline O'Donoghue. I think she was talking about how Marion had been kind of a champion of her work and was oh, a really lovely, that's beautiful person. Yeah. yeah. So I was trying to 
work out. There's a book, I'm sure it's Marion Keys, where um, they go to Greece. Um, and <laughs> We tried to find this on Google and all it would give us is Rachel's yeah, holiday. Yeah, and I'm like, which, which the one where she does not go on holiday in the no. traditional sense. Rachel's, Rachel's holiday is to a <laughs> institution. institution. <laughs> we must talk about that another time. Yeah, we, we definitely. Yeah. I think it could have been Lucy Sullivan is getting married. Either way, um, when I thought about starting to try to write my own stories... The travel and the trip stuff just seemed integral to the enjoyment of me writing it and what I enjoyed to read. I think there's that saying, I don't know whose the quote is, but read what you want to write and write what you want to read. And that was how travel made its way into my stories. I guess travel is really great territory for these stories, which are so often about, you know, our, our heroine's figuring out who they are and and usually if you look at like the classic structure of a narrative the hero's journey literally a journey and so often it's about someone being forced to strike out from what they know into new territory and sort of figuring out stuff about themselves along the way I actually think it probably I'm quite a literal person and I think I might have even read they go on a journey so I was like we have to go on a journey (laughs) in the same way never ever forever um there's a writing um device called Save the Cat. (laughs) You're trying to, um, I guess, get your readers to think more fondly about a character that maybe they haven't thought of quite as fondly. And I quite literally have a Save the Cat moment in Never Ever Forever. And I think that happened because I'm like, how do we get everyone to like this character more? There's there's a book called Save the Cat. So I, I literally had them saving a cat rather than the metaphor oh of saving the cat. Yeah. I never put that together yeah. and I even knew that. Yeah, the save the cat moment. So, you know, it could be anything. Rescuing, I don't know, wiping someone's brow. Oh, yeah, there's the save the cat moment, um, like the love contract. Mm. Um, Will taking care of um, some main character's name in love contract. Zoe. Zoe, yeah, when she's Oh, sick. the gastro incident. The yes. gastro, because he's been an asshole up until this point or, you know, at various points. Um, and that's a real save the cat moment when he's looking. And same in the hating game when she's sick in the hating game. Oh, yeah. I did it in Five Bush Weddings. There's nothing like having a bloke have to take care of someone, yeah. you know, when they're not well to really like. Yeah. yeah. So I think I read so many writing craft books that I, yeah, I just literally. Um, and yeah, I think the hero's journey and the journey of that probably, <laughs> I just applied that practically. I suppose the other thing about travel and, you know, new worlds or exotic locations is the fish out of water thing you can really sort of contrast who your character is and how they're not fitting in Mm. and I think that's one of the questions that I get quite a lot have I been to every place that I write about now yes I have I've never written about a place that I have not been to but how well can you know a place when you're visiting it right so when I write travel it is always fish out of water to date it has been because I think you can get away a bit more uh, as well with the rosy coloured outlook as well you know in Duck when Maxine the protagonist travels to France it is like a snapshot wondrous kind of time it's not like the reality of living in a place uh oh that's yeah I wanted to touch on this actually in journalism we talk about parachute journalism right where someone is literally dropped into a place to cover usually a crisis, a war, a disaster, and then they're immediately parachuted out again. And you get a very different story than someone who is embedded or someone who is local. Mm. Um, And I guess it's the same. What you're saying is it would be a different matter for you to set an entire novel in another country or another place. I would not feel confident doing that in the same way that to date, you know, when I have characters based in Australia, they're living in Sydney or, you know, as is the case with Never Ever Forever in Mudgee, she has just been parachuted into. I've seen me learning. I know. <laughs> parachuted there. And obviously when you're in a place, um, there's a lot of other characters. So whenever I have a character that, you know, is local to the new place, um, I will have sensitivity readers have a read. Like in Duck, um, I had a French reader read French characters. You know, you're also inserting for me, um, you know, a bit of the language just for the flavour, <laughs> the, to- the tone. Um Yeah, so I think that's kind of how I do it, Um, Mm. right or wrong, I'm not sure. But do you read, like, do you read for the Wonderlust experience or, like, what? Sometimes I do. I mean, I'm 
I am saving Vanessa McCausland's Dreaming in French for when I can finally like take a bit of a break after work wraps up because to me that's a real it's, it's so a holiday yeah. yeah and I mean Vanessa's books are not romantic comedy by any stretch and romantic certainly certainly romantic and she is such a beautiful lyrical immersive writer that I've been longing for her to take us overseas so oh. Dreaming in French is her fourth book and normally she she will take us to the south coast and I thought, I thought you were like saying that she should be leading tours which oh, I would 100% oh sign up for but you're just talking about where she takes us in her books yeah oh gosh I would be all for that you know because you can see I guess how a writer views the world and I can only imagine her leading a tour group and just you know we'd be I think dissolving in tears about the beauty of crumbling like mansions and like just really beautiful. Uh, so yeah, when she came out with this book, I was like all of this like beautiful immersive feeling and we're getting it in France. You're going to love that book. It's, it's yeah, definitely a top read for me from this year. Um, I've only read Vanessa's novel, The Beautiful Words, which is exquisite. And I feel like, I got a sense for the things that she does really well or the, the kind of way that she tells her stories and in that there's a lot of really sensual detail. That one had settings in Tasmania. Um, is it Bribey Island? I don't know. Bruni Island. Bruni. <laughs> Bribey. Bribey Island is like where retirees go in How Queensland. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite as chic uh. as the kind of uh, oysters and gin and wine and stuff but yeah in the beautiful words it's all these like architecturally designed houses with gorgeous interiors there's a lot of description of food you know there's a scene where um two of the characters go to the markets that really stays in my mind and the things that they eat oh, she just does that so well so i'm really excited to see was, how yeah, she I was does it say just wait with the, the in in oh the salt mines and the food the, the french food yeah, yeah. so she immersive armchair travel like it's the best especially mm. I mean I was already doing it but I think there was a bit of a rise of it with COVID yeah and lockdowns because it was literally the only way <laughs> that you could travel um so I read quite a few books during that time I think that were very transportative <laughs> yeah so I think we've spoken about the Unhoneymooners on the pod before, which is Christina Lauren. And that's one of my favourites because not only are they travelling, but they're travelling to like a tropical place. <laughs> I, lo I love a tropical story. <laughs> Fun holidays and cocktails. like Swim up bar, the ultimate bar. luxury. Yeah. Uh, and I think I was saying to Claire off the pod that Sandy Barker, who's an Australian author, she's... I think she might, she might have like 10 plus books, but she was the first author that I saw kind of doing what I wanted to do and rather it being a like, oh no, someone's already doing this. It was such a beautiful, people want stories like this, like I can write in this way. So uh, she's got some beautiful books set in Greece. Um, I think there's one in Italy um, and just very much that armchair travel, fun, still with depth but taking us on a real adventure. <laughs> Who doesn't love an adventure? Who doesn't love an adventure? One that came to mind for me that I really enjoyed was Returning to Adelaide, which is the debut novel that Anne Freeman put out last year. I think that came out 2022. I know Anne is readying for publication of her second novel early in 2024, Me That You See. And is I that think Haw Hawkeye publishing? Hawkeye, yeah. yep. Anne is delightful highly recommend following her on her social media fashion what what would you call that style it's just so fashionable oh, the word bird of paradise yeah. brings to mind there's a lot of color there's a lot of energy she's and the very, way she does her hair it's very so thoughtful great. i mean she's written quite a bit about i don't know that she worked in fashion she's definitely done like a bit of modeling she's done some extra work she's done a lot of like fashions of the field competing at race days and you know, that kind of dressing is all about attention to detail. It's all about the little things that tell the story of, yeah, of who you are through clothing. And I really felt that in this book, Returning to Adelaide, which is about a woman who, you know, is kind of ground down by early parenthood and um, is facing some really shit times with her husband. Um, yeah, I think the kind of 
thing that kicks off the book is that she's just really ground down in this sort of domestic life and then finds out that, you know, maybe her husband hasn't been loyal to her and she just goes, you know what, bugger it, and uh, takes herself off to Greece where she had spent time as a young person and she has this kind of reunites with this sort of childhood sweetheart character who now is like running a crazy luxurious hotel and has this incredibly luxurious holiday and it's just like I mean there's a lot of depth to it like I don't want to sell it short as a fluffy thing but there's also this incredible wish fulfillment to it like when she arrives in Greece her luggage is lost so she has to buy a whole new wardrobe of beautiful clothes new wardrobe montage (laughs) like I read literally for a montage I do love it oh I know I'm thinking about that in my new book actually that's gonna be fun oh how fun I reckon I have written so many plane scenes to the point where um we've spoken about this a little bit that I want to write this train book and I think it's just because I don't know how else to write a plane like we've (laughs) we've had uh yeah the annoying uh fellow passengers the whimsical looking out the window the getting too drunk on the plane like Gosh, I've written a lot of plane scenes. <laughs> I need to get them on some type of automobile <laughs> to transport them to the destination. Maybe it's time you did a cruise. Yeah. Oh, actually, um, that reminds me. Rachel Johns has written a book on a cruise. She writes women's fiction and rural fiction. So one of her women's fiction books, I want to say a couple of years ago, called Just One Wish. And it's three generations on a cruise, which is cool because oh, you've got fun. nowhere to go, right? <laughs> Uh, and it's starts... well, it's my worst nightmare, but yeah. And then from memory, it's been a while since I've read it. So Rachel, if you're listening, sorry, but um, the youngest daughter is having like a cruise mats as well, a ship mats. <laughs> I don't know the cruise mats. <laughs> a is cruise fun. mats. Uh, and so she's also hiding that from her mother and her grandmother. So she's ducking away from dinner. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know. It's a lot of fun. And then you get forced proximity, right, on oh, a cruise yeah. ship. How fun! But yeah, I think. Also, I mean, I'm talking a lot about international travel, but I think you can also get that feeling. I mean, as we are saying with Vanessa McCausland, I was like, can't we go further afield? But that quality that she brings from armchair travel when you're traveling around Australia as well. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a great book called Amber and Alice um, by Jeanette Paul, um, Mm -hmm. which I think is a pseudonym. She's got another book out right now called The Summer Palace, but that's like driving through the outback. And that's great as well because... Yeah, we're on a, an adventure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, obviously, Emma Gray in The Last Love Note, that kind of trip away is really integral to the plot of that story. Oh, yeah, it is too. And similarly, I was thinking about a book that I really love, Jessica Detman's Our favorite. <laughs> How to Be Second Best. Again, where – is it Emma, the main character in that one? Um, I think it is Emma, yeah. Has to do a trip away to help uh, someone – Influencer? Think... No, no, she's like basically – Oh, no, she's not even ghostwriting. She's editing a book for someone and the the writer has this, like, hideaway at Byron Bay or somewhere like that and so Emma kind of has to go up there to put the pressure on. She's kind of got the publisher saying, deliver me the book or else. But it means that she has to leave this really kind of messy domestic situation that she has at home where she's really beholden to not just her own husband and child but that husband's new partner and child Uh, And so it takes her out of that situation and gives her this chance to be a different version of herself, maybe connecting with who she was as a younger person or figuring out who she wants to be away from those, I don't want to say shackles of domestic life, but yeah, there's a freedom to it. And again, that kind of wish fulfillment or the, you know, the. I, I think a lot of the time, and I know like not all stories, uh, are for you know women who have children and that kind of thing but I think a lot of women who are reading to escape through these stories do have those domestic situations that they want to switch off from totally I mean it's bit. the reason that I travel and you know not having children just being able to escape from your life and you know be able to think clearly away from not even domestic chores, but the structures in which we live. Um, you can hear yourself clearly and that and you get a bit feeling, of perspective. You right? really do. Like there's nothing like walking through an airport overseas just with you and your bag and your thoughts. Everything is put into perspective. And again, I totally acknowledge the, the privilege of being able to do that, to separate oneself from their life for a little bit. But 
because I can't be travelling 24-7, um, books are the next best thing for me. Yeah. Well, I, and again, it was a device that I kind of used in five bush weddings as well because Stevie goes to shoot a kind of destination wedding in Greece. You have the Greece wedding. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Is that wedding five? Or is oh, it a I special six? No. it's. I think it's, it counts yeah. in the weddings yeah. of the titular five. How do you not know? Because... <laughs> Don't well, ask me anything about duck. I this, did not remember. This is something that where we're really different, right? Because you need the title before you can tell the story, whereas sure. I am terrible at titles and they always come together quite late for me. So it was my agent that came up with Five Bush Weddings. She was like, how many weddings are in the book? <laughs> and I had to really go through and sort of count them. Um, so, yeah, depending on how you count it, whether it's, you know, weddings that Stevie is photographing or ones that she's attending, you could kind of tally mm. up to a different number i mean i was loving your book anyway obviously <laughs> but when we were going to greece i was like yes yes <laughs> so i've never been to greece oh this fraud. is this is a little <laughs> counter to your approach mm. but i did that with google earth with photos with a lot of googling why I did feel you like choose, i did it okay why did, oh you, you totally did why did you choose greece then needed to be something remote because I knew I wanted a situation where it was going to become very convoluted for her to get home and that was going to make, you know, it really forces the plot, this kind mm. of passage where she's away and it's like this holiday from her life where she kind of gets a bit of perspective and starts to think about maybe what she might want to shift and how and change her life. She's also away from kind of the two love interest men and she's also like offline her life which is getting increasingly hard to do in a contemporary story right mm. having a person be not able to see their phone it was kind of stretching at um the realms of possibility even a couple of years ago when i wrote it so yeah the idea of remoteness was important and that she would kind of eventually land back in australia and her find out that online all of this stuff had happened but yeah i just think i thought greece would be really beautiful and I liked the idea of describing that mm. as a wedding destination. You know, I think I had seen some beautiful photos. I was like, I'll just copy that. No. I, and sometimes it's about the mood as well that you want to evoke. Mm. Like, I mean, I can't remember if I've shared this on the podcast before, but uh, initially with Duck, and Maxine was travelling um, to Montreal in Canada and not to Paris mm. because I'd spent more time recently in Montreal. I had a good friend that lived in Toronto, so I'd spent a week there over Christmas and then I kind of decided that it had to be Paris, like it had to be France, um, which is why Suzette as well is Canadian, French-Canadian, because I just picked her up <laughs> and moved countries. <laughs> Thought it added some extra flavour, so oh, I kept nicely it. done. Yeah, and even with Never Ever Forever with India, it's not a place that I've been to the most recently. Uh, but I think it took me one year after coming back from my trip to India to work out if I enjoyed it, and so that was something different for me. It was such an overload of senses, as I'm sure that even people that haven't travelled to India could imagine. That I never had time to process it while in the moment. I didn't get those moments of reflection at night or the night I just couldn't process it was too much it took me a full year so I thought there was something about that that um yeah it was incredibly it was the it was the place for the the book it, it, it encapsulated the mood um that I that I wanted um my heroine Rosie to have I think you did that really beautifully. I really enjoyed the description in that section like I remember looking reading lines and just being like that is a beautiful way to think about it. But I do think you convey that sort of cacophony of sensorial input that is overwhelming and mm. also the complexity of it. Like it's not just looking out at a beautiful vista. It's seeing something beautiful and smelling something disgusting or, mm. you know, being the contrast of, you know, the beauty but also the poverty and the struggle, mm. which I think is how I imagine parts of India. Mm. And I think as well, uh, again, I can't remember if I've told this story, but initially... Uh, at university I wanted to be a foreign correspondent. Oh yes I love this story. <laughs> that, I don't know if you have told it here. Yeah and that was um, I did a, like journalism degree uh, university and then as part of that I won like an overseas internship and I had been studying Indonesian actually at high school and university so I had put in my placement for Indonesia where I spoke the language or spoke more of the language and I got Thailand. Uh, so 
I went off uh, to work at an English language broadsheet in Thailand in Bangkok without knowing any of the language. And I got sent to cover like shampoo launches and things like that that were mainly in English. But I think it was being like in the newsroom and by no stretch was it the role of a foreign correspondent, but I just realised that it was quite stressful <laughs> or something, uh, yeah, to, I guess, be parachuted uh, into places where I didn't speak the language and report on that was kind of not what I was expecting. I was expecting more of a Katrina Roundtree getaway experience. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, um, yeah, whatever it was that, like, drew me to wanting to, you know, be somewhere someone that was so different from where I lived and to absorb the senses and smells and basically creative writing is a way better way to channel that than I had initially intended with what I thought was a foreign correspondent role uh, was too overwhelming to report about shampoo. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love that. One last thing I wanted to see what you thought about is I think there are certain locations that... rom-com or romance writers often lean on that you know are international but they're so well known you can assume a certain level of knowledge are we about to talk about new york obviously (laughs) but paris as well right Oh yes so don't know anything about that in writing (laughs) well i was just going to ask what you think about obviously it's a there's so much consciousness in the culture of a place like New York. And so when I first travelled to New York, I remember just walking around with this constant sense of deja vu because you feel like you've seen it all mm. in the movies you've been watching your entire life. Mm. The songs that are about New York. And it's the same with Paris, mm. London, I guess. It's already romanticised in the media. So I, I or other texts that it's almost... A shortcut. It's kind like, of cheating like a, tra- a bit, right? It is cheating. I don't know if you were inspired by um, Claire and I both attended one of the launches of Trent Dalton's um, fabulous new book and he spoke about using Brisbane in his books and how he almost set himself a challenge, I would say, to make <laughs> romanticise uh, Brisbane in the way that, you know, your New York or Paris um, is. I forget the bridge. I'm not that familiar with the... I was trying to see if I had written a note because I remember being really struck by it. He was like, why yeah. can't I make the Victoria Bridge the most boring bridge in Australia Yeah, um, like feel as romantic as... Brooklyn Bridge. The or... same. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and he's obviously achieved that. I mean, <laughs> anyone that's read his books and his international success would know that the feeling that you get from reading is that kind of very hopeful possibility rose-coloured, I mean, incredibly dark things happen in those books, but the sense of joy that you get from being in those cities that we know so well. Mm. Oh, that's cool. I mean, it's it's different for me because I know Brisbane Mm. well. I've lived there. So, yeah, that stuff in his books really works for me and it's really interesting to hear that for someone who doesn't have the same level of knowledge that it's working on that level for you. Yeah. For now and then, I wanted to talk about something that feels like a bit of a lost genre to me, and that is the action romance. Oh, yeah. So I had a very fun sleepover at my friend Pi's house when I was in Melbourne a little while ago. and Like an adult sleepover? Right. I stayed at her house. <laughs> cute. Cute. And I, I don't know if this movie is legitimately as awesome as it felt or if we were just you know, we'd finally got like a baby to go to bed and it was just so fun to sit there and drink wine. (laughs) But we watched The Lost City, uh, which I think came out last year, I think it was 2022, Uh, Sandra Bullock and Channing Tatum. It's fun. I saw it at the movies with my mum and sister and can attest that was gold. We were rolling around laughing. I found it very funny and I found (laughs) it very clever. I mean, you know, it, it felt like they were both at great pains to show that they were in on the joke. And, you know, I guess there's a lot of sort of parody to it. But it also, like, said some things that I think we agree with at a very basic level about, you know, the fact that romance writers and readers aren't always taken very seriously. 
so yeah, the plot of that is Sandra Bullock is a is a romance writer who's kind of, you know, lost this lost the spark a bit in her books. She's thinking about packing it in, and a big part of her success has been this sort of leading male character that she keeps using again and again, and he's always not played by, but sort of represented by this male model on the covers. And so uh, Dash, this character, has a huge following among her readers. And so whenever she does a book launch, he's there. When you think about it, it doesn't, doesn't really make a lot of sense. But but I, 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 you know, you make all these little friends in this journey. So maybe, <laughs> you know, they just... She didn't know how to be a writer without him also in tow. Yeah. Anymore. Where did her cover model end and she begin yeah vice versa anyway I guess there's a fun kind of like inversion of the traditional thing where like they go on this adventure and she's the smart one and he's kind of the himbo uh and yeah I think he gets most of his gear off at one point there's sort of a a leech scene that's very (laughs) very magic Mike Brad Pitt is also great in this movie. Brad Pitt is great and Daniel Radcliffe is the villain and he's very good. The casting is just, it, it really, I mean, look, the movie, the plot, great, but the casting I think is what elevates this movie. So it has this whole kind of like treasure quest, you know, there's there's villains, there's they're in the jungle, they're on an island, there's also a whole like subplot with her, I guess, publicist or publisher, um, Devine Brown, who is excellent in everything that she does and is a very funny part of this story. But, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I found it really fun. And I guess obviously this movie is uh, an homage to and a kind of parody of Romancing the Stone, which out of service to our listeners and you, Karina, I have just rewatched Romancing the Stone. Did you? Well done. Yep. Yeah, you know, I have a lot of stuff I should be doing. but I, I mean, I, I thought we were discussing <laughs> Delta, so I prioritised that, but we'll do Delta oh, another we'll, time. We'll talk about that, don't <laughs> We'll you? do Delta. Actually, maybe we should. I don't know. Um, you saw my review? No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of sums up mine too. Well, it was interesting to revisit Romance in the Stone, which I remember, and I must have been very, like, I feel like I watched it as a kid, and I remember it being really funny. And I guess it is still a comedy but so much of the humour is just like this chick can't handle nature kind of. That's basically the joke. <laughs> a lot of it. Is it not a deeper theme? It's literally that. Just not an outdoors chick. <laughs> no, no. I mean, it's. I guess, you know, it sort of opens with her in her New York apartment and she's just finishing off, um, you know, the end of a book and she always makes herself cry when she tells these stories. And I guess it's her friends in New York think that she's being too picky with men because she's still single but she's like no can't relate (laughs) she's like I know my guy's out there you know and obviously she's written her ideal um, romantic hero and she's holding out for that and you know her cynical publisher is like you'll never find a guy like that you know Uh, and then you know maybe she does least expected place least expected man yeah well I mean I guess it thing I was having trouble with is that Michael Douglas in this movie he kept reminding me of my father-in-law he just kept putting me in mind of Lee Dewey and I just couldn't uh kind of suspend that disbelief I don't want to think about love Lee Dewey don't want to think about him as a romantic lead forbidden love (laughs) (laughs) sorry (laughs) no forbidden for good reason father-in-law dearest (laughs) sorry sorry this has gotten weird I can't yeah I mean, the other thing I was struck by is like, so Romancing the Stone is set in Colombia and I feel like the Colombia Board of Tourism is probably still recovering Mm. from this. I don't think they even actually filmed there. I think they probably just did it in Mexico or something like that. Where was the Lost City filmed or where was it supposed to be? Well, this is the interesting thing, right? The Lost City is set in a fictitious, it's just like some tiny Mm. island in the middle of the Atlantic. They don't tie it to any particular country, Mm. which I think is smart because looking back on Romancing the Stone, it's, I mean, I guess this is the other thing about stories set in exotic locations is that so often it's a really one-dimensional, if not outright offensive portrayal of the locals, which Mm. in in Romancing the Stone, they're, you know, drug runners or they're, you know, people living in kind of slummy areas or bus drivers or, and I think 
the Lost City, they had kind of the good sense to be like, we can't do that. Mm. Uh, and so... So this is really a now and then segment where they've already done the now for us because that was the then. Yeah. So we don't even have to recast it. It was and it was done successfully. I think they, I think they handled that I think they even that well. Rotten Tomatoes thinks it was successful as well. But it, it got me thinking about this idea of like romance action movies, which you don't see very often. No, I mean, we've spoken about the Ryan Gosling movement and him coming back for us because normally because those two genres are not combined at all. It's like action and these these are for the guys and we lose our romantic heroes to the action. They don't come back. Which is very interesting. Like, who were they making Romancing the Stone for? Was it a date movie where it was like the guy can, you know, see these kind of snapping alligators and gunfights and, you know, the girls are there for the romance? It's true, actually. Hmm. Or just everyone's just making out in the back row. Yeah. (laughs) No no one's watching. There was, of course, a sequel, which I have not had time to watch for you, Jewel of the Nile. Come on. Do it for the readers. But I was thinking about movies like... The Mummy, which I don't think we would call that an action romance, but I would say the romantic plot is pretty integral to the story. You say action and I kind of start snoozing a bit because I really, I mean, I've really not been action focused (laughs) the last few years. I was just trying to think Broken Arrow is probably the last. It's like Christian Slater and uh, (laughs) I'm, I'm going way back. I've really avoided action. Like I can't even remember something... I guess speed is action. Speed is probably a good action romance. Mm. I mean, look, The Mummy is probably most notable now. And again, even watching, I watched that this morning as, as research, again, it does have these portrayals of people in Egypt and, and those parts of the world that probably wouldn't fly today. Mm. But I think that movie is most notable now for uh, being the kind of bisexual awakening of many people in our generation. Rachel Weisz. Is... Even Brendan Fraser is like... Wow, I never thought of him as... I, like, I know he had a lot of hunky roles, but he never really appealed to me, but he's good in this. Maybe I'll watch then. Mm. The other movie that came to mind is True Lies, which I think, again, is sort of a relic of this big-budget movie-making era that you just don't see anymore. And I think the romance is really at the heart of that story. I haven't seen it, Claire. You haven't seen it. I know it was in the Google Doc, but it says a question mark. I didn't know we were going to talk about it. I would highly recommend you. (laughs) I mean, look, you would not think that an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie would be this, but it is really funny. The action is great and it's made at that point where not everything is CGI. They're real effects, so they're actually, like, blowing stuff up or, like, there's a helicopter scene I'm trying to remember. Like, it's big budget spectacle huge movie but at its heart it's a story about a couple and their marriage so Arnold Schwarzenegger is like this spy kind of dude and Jamie Lee Curtis is his wife and he's kind it's not that his cover gets blown it's like that his enemies kind of come to her and ask her to like pretend they're getting her to do a secret mission so she thinks that she's like you know doing all this subterfuge which he is as well I don't know. I'm not really... I don't know if I'm selling it well, but I'm telling you, it's really good. What year was it? Oh, I want to say, like, mid-90s. Now my computer's died. Maybe I have. I mean, this is before you're on multi-devices and you can't actually remember what you watched because you were on Instagram at the same time. But maybe it's just old age playing Havoc and I can't recall. It's vaguely familiar, but maybe that's just because I'm familiar with Arnold and Jamie Lee. So it's 1994, directed by James Cameron... I just, I really recommend it. It's really fun. And I just love that, yeah, it's kind of this story about a couple who have become really distant from each other in their marriage. Like they've got a daughter who's like an early or maybe even a teenager. And it's like they don't, it's like they don't know each other anymore. And through this ludicrous plot, they kind of fall back in love again. And she gets like a, a really sexy scene where she like has to seduce, you know, someone that she's trying to take down through her spycraft. She looks amazing. Sold. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll watch it, Claire. So that might be a bit of a left field recommendation <laughs> for that rom-com pod, but there's comedy, there's romance, and there's a lot of things blowing up. It's really fun. Love it. I 
was trying to see how many octaves I could hit then. Love, love. You're going to get all Mariah with I'm it. Tis the season. <laughs> it is almost, isn't it? So I've spoken about this book briefly on the pod. I think I said that I was going to be reading it on my trip. You're double dipping. Yeah, I am double dipping because... This is like your book report though. It, it is. And also I think that episode really I was reading the Never Ever Forever proofs and I was had this dangling as like a carrot as a reward for when I finished. Um, so the book is Amy Matthews's, it's hard to say, someone else's bucket list. So this is a book that's out in January with Simon and Schuster. It's actually already been published in the States um, to amazing reviews and I can certainly see why. Uh, so I had a digital copy of that to take away just for luggage space. And I knew as soon as I kind of started reading the first couple of chapters that this is something that I wanted to savour. So I waited until I was home and could read the physical copy that I also had. And it's just such a beautiful story. And Claire has heard me go on about it. So Amy Matthews is one third of the Love on Com- Campus um, podcast, which we've mentioned certainly a few times. <laughs> So a doctor, a study... A doctor of romance. A doctor of romance. Um, She knows her stuff. She certainly knows her stuff. I love my... And romantic comedy, I'm not sure that it really fits that genre or if it's more contemporary romance. Um, It is certainly very modern and there's certainly parts of the book that I laughed in and were cute and warm and fuzzy, um, but it centres around two sisters and this is not giving anything away... The elder sister passes away um, of cancer very very early on in the book and has a bucket list um, that she leaves for her sister to do as a way of funding her treatment. They've been left with some big medical bills, um, so there's some stakes there as well in that if she doesn't fulfil this bucket list or these items... Um, they, her family are going to be paying off these bills forever. So it's very well structured and the bucket list items range from, and it's so funny because I think it was last episode um, we were talking about Harry Met Sally and that orgasm scene in <laughs> Katz's Deli. Uh, so that's one of the bucket list items. So oh, are they all rom-commy bucket list items? They're not all rom-commy, no. no, and some of them are quite niche, uh, personal to the story. Um, so it was a good mixture of those big ticket items. The fun ones, there's quite a few based in New York, including starring in West Side Story on Broadway as a walk-on part, to planting a tree. I mean, I think it was such a good mixture of, yeah, those those grand big gestures those fun ones to those small intimate um which you come to understand the meaning of those obviously the more you follow the story but the way that it was structured I guess from a writer's perspective like what got me turning was that I knew straight up that we were going to be completing this list and so I kind of read it like a bucket list item per night to really save your yeah it's just I just love when you can chunk a book up in that way but it wasn't predictable I cried on the final page and I'm not a huge crier with books. I just thought the way that I had so much fun with the book because obviously it was fun to do so many of these bucket list items and felt like I was really, really doing them alongside the main character and feeling so deeply and like really feeling moved by the gravity of what this meant as well. So uh, this is certainly a book to look out for in January. And I'm excited because Amy has also got another book following. I'm not sure if it's out in Australia next year or the US and then followed by Australia, but it's called Best First and Last. And it's actually based in Machu Picchu in Peru and it's about a trek. So Amy certainly captures that wanderlust feeling that I just, I read for. Like this is a textbook book as a reader that I just adore and Amy also writes under another name Amy Barry Um, and I think it's like country and western rom-coms yeah Uh, which Simon and Schuster have also picked up and are going to be publishing in Australia so I'm so excited to read and I've just become a fangirl of Amy (laughs) yeah you've definitely sold me I'm really looking forward to getting my hands on that one Claire Well, I want to do a really quick shout out to two books that I just read back to back, which I think are a lovely pairing. And that is uh, a book that you've mentioned quite a few times, which is Bound to Happen by Jonathan Shannon. 
Uh, and I read that after I read Jono's partner's book, Elodie Cheeseman's debut, Love in Theory. And I think they're actually a really interesting couple of books to pair together, not just for imagining what the pillow talk is like <laughs> at their place, two rom-com authors. And, and authors are very, I would say, cerebral or very clever stories that are both kind of about this sort of head versus heart kind of dichotomy. I don't know. Is that grumpy sunshine as well or is that different? I don't know. It's like the pragmatic and the dreamer, right? Well, I think Elodie's book in particular is about the central character is Romy, who's a lawyer, and it's sort of very theory-driven approach to dating where it's like she hears... Well, her mum tells her about this story uh, or a concept called optimal stopping theory, which is like literally a formula to figure out at what point in your life you're most likely to meet the love of your life. And so they kind of figure out that it makes sense that the next like decent person that she starts dating is the person that she should probably settle down with. So she starts to kind of approach her dating in this very kind of planned and theoretical way. And then, of course, you know, it ends up as kind of almost a love triangle kind of story and she's literally choosing between the guy who's good on paper and the guy who kind of makes her heart flutter. And all through the book are these kind of philosophical and sociological and psychological kind of theories and snippets of data about dating. Like it's it's a book that feels quite loaded with research. It's really interesting as well as a really fun love story whereas Jono's I think takes it on in a different way which is looking at fate looking at destiny that whole kind of you know butterfly flaps its wings in South America and (laughs) breeze in Brisbane Um, (laughs) Trent Dalton's Brisbane yes but Jono's book is very Sydney so is Elodie's yeah sorry I was going to just mention them really quickly but I just I found them a really interesting pair of stories to read together and I would really wholeheartedly recommend both of them but the story that I wanted to talk about today very fittingly for Wanderlust is Never Ever Forever which I had the great pleasure of reading early and uh, the great privilege of reading early and so yes you dear listener can buy this book right now and I think that you should it's just such a joy and I think to me it made me think of the golden age of Chiclet it made me think of Marion Key's I think because you're so good at voice and you have these wonderful heroines that you just want to follow them everywhere. This is so weird, Claire. And also you're making eye contact with me. Oh, sorry. (laughs) I was like, why isn't she looking at me? I was like, am I making you feel uncomfortable? Um, So we've talked a little bit about the plot and I I just would say that it's really fun and it's going to be a really good summer read. It's the kind of book that you want in your book bag when you go into the beach, if you're going on holiday, pick it up at the airport. Um, we hope it's for sale there. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, it's got to be. <laughs> I think a friend of the pod, Josh Hortonella, did a beautiful review on his Instagram this week. I know, he's the sweetest, the biggest champion of Australian rom-com or any Australian romance and crime, to be honest. <laughs> All things. And I think, you know, he talks about the tropes that are in this story and there are a lot of tropes. Yeah, there are. And this is actually before I really knew tropes. Yeah. So it just shows you how we gravitate towards them anyway. A lot Um, of it's instinctive, isn't it? Yeah, it it is. It really is. And then I was like, wait a second, there's a lot of tropes in this. (laughs) (laughs) You have the um, fish out of water with Rosie moving to Mudgy. You have all of the fun of her doing this kind of radio career and I loved her boss character. I know, Seti. Seti is, is the best. Uh, you also have these, like, two really great romantic leads and you really don't know which way it's going to go right until the end, um, which is really fun. You've got that kind of second chance element with her ex, Wes, and then you've got this kind of wild card character in this um, Marcus, the kind of celebrity vet that she ends up doing her radio show with in Mudgy. Um, who has some wild stuff going on. You've got the trip to India, which is, as we've talked about, you know, a real kind of literal departure from the story where things get really, really interesting. Soap opera. 
I'm in my soap opera it era does. with this book. There is a there is a bit of a soap opera vibe, but I love that. Like a, a bit of high melodrama mm. is fun. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I get what you're saying with that. I, I would 100% agree. I would say it's a wild ride. Love the friend characters. All of that stuff was really well drawn. Yeah. I'll Thanks, be raving Kay. about this all summer. Never, ever, forever by our own Karina May. <laughs> friend of the pod. Friend of the pod. <laughs> On the controls. <laughs> Perfect pairing. Claire's going to take it away today. (laughs) Um, Because as much as I have wanted to read this book for a very long time, Something Blue by Alex Sarkis out with Ultimo in 2022 and also just released in the UK, it hasn't made it at the top of my pile yet. So I'm increasingly itching to read this one. Well, bump it up there, Karina. I actually want to reread this book because I enjoyed it so much. Uh, so it's a debut by Alex Sarkis called Something Blue, as Karina said. It's got a really fantastic cover. Mm, um, it's like a, it like wraps around. It's like a girl. The, the front cover is sort of a girl in half profile with um, sunglasses on and it sort of wraps around the spine and onto the back. This is interesting because when we were talking about covers earlier, the it's cartoon cover, like illustrated cover, but then it also really is a hybrid of like your... Paulina Simons, like those old school half-face covers that have also made a resurgence. So I love that it's those two things combined, Mm. like women's fiction and romantic comedy. Well, that's kind of apt Mm. because I don't know that Something Blue would fall into the straight rom-com category. Like it's it's a bit of a sort of not coming-of-age story, but it's about a woman figuring herself out. So it's about uh, the lead character is Nicole Najim struggling to find herself after a painful breakup. Um, And to me, the magic of the book is the setting and the voice. And just as the author Alex is, the main character, Nicole, is Lebanese-Australian and she's living in Western Sydney. And this book is a love letter to Western Sydney, but it's it's not... um, it's not saccharine. And so the way that Nicole, this main character, kind of rediscovers herself is through photography. So that's a kind of motif through the story that she's taking these images of the places around her and the people around her and kind of grappling with, um, you know, some of the social issues there. I guess religion is part of her life um, and she's kind of seeing some of the hypocrisy of that as well as the comfort that it can bring the way that the city's kind of changing in terms of development and that plays into some of the main characters, sort of romantic options that Nicole has, one of whom is like a childhood friend that she's really drawn to and then there's a a new guy that she she kind of starts seeing. And I didn't set this up very well because this is supposed to be our perfect pairing. (laughs) I forgot. I was like, oh, my God, this story sounds amazing. I know, you went straight into it. Yeah, sorry. What I was going to say is if you love, and fucking who doesn't, Looking for Alan Brandy, the Melina Marquetta just drop classic. Drop the f bomb on our podcast. <laughs> it's a first. Is it a first? <laughs> I think it might be. Sorry. Uh, if you enjoyed looking for Alan Brandy, particularly in terms of the way it evokes place and the really kind of fresh voice and humour of that character, and I celebration th- of culture. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a lot of common DNA with something blue and I think Melina did do the cover blurb for this this was one of the she first did. that's titles. so impressive this was one of the She's first icon titles that Ultimo put out when they began and so it would have come out beginning um, of 2022 I think vaguely I recall yeah 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 which is no excuse why I haven't gotten to it yet so I mean this is a book that I think people are still finding and I think when they find it mm-hmm. like it's very well loved I was just looking like it's got a it's over four on Goodreads like people respond really well to it. I'm so excited to see that it's coming out in the UK. Congratulations, Alex. And I just... So she had these great billboards, like, on the tube. Like, what a dream. Alex is also this, like, incredibly glamorous, gorgeous person, if you follow her on Instagram. Um, But also, she goes to a lot of weddings. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, that feeds into this story. Like, so much of... There's a lot of 
a little bit similar to the Bush Telegraph in my stories, like gossip and the way that the community talks and sees and observes people and has expectations really plays out in a very similar way in these communities that she's writing about. The beauty parlour is a big, like, hub of the action, <sighs> which, yeah, and I just, I just think it's so clever, really enjoyed, even more than the plot, even more than the setting, the voice. Okay. Which I've realised is what I read for. And I read for voice as well, so this is perfect. And again, it's that observational humour. She knows her community. She knows how far she can take it in terms of taking the piss out of it while still doing it really lovingly. It's a a tightrope to walk sometimes, and I think she does it really well. I highly recommend it with that. (laughs) Well, I haven't. South Star. (coughs) St. George. We will link to all the books and movies we mentioned in our show notes. You can sign up to our Substack to get the lowdown straight to your inbox when we drop a new episode. I feel like the show notes are coming out really messy um, on like Apple and Spotify. I put I put a lot of time into getting these links up in our in our Substack, and I feel like they just look like a dog. We all breakfast. really appreciate it, but I think what Claire's trying to say for the best delivery, sign up. Um, okay. <laughs> Otherwise, you'd be picking through the hedges to get what you need uh, if you're looking at the description in the podcast. Yeah, it's a mess. I'm sorry about that. Uh, follow us on Instagram at that romcom pod and shoot us a DM if there's something you want us to talk about. And rate and review. We we actually had a look at our reviews the other day and saw some beautiful new ones. So thank you. Um, we will shout you out. Um, we love them. Thank <laughs> you. We love them. Uh, that's it. Uh, that was. I think quite long and curly. Chunky. <laughs> we just jetted on that journey, didn't we, together? So <laughs> thanks for joining us. See you next time. Bye. Bye.